0: Hey and welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host Chrissy Costa, and here with me this week is Corbett Drummy, co-founder and CEO of Popular Pays, a marketplace connecting brands with content creators. As a former Leo Burnett employee, Corbett is no stranger to the creative world, having worked at the ad agency before striking out on his own with a fellow coworker to create Popular Pays. Their balance of creativity and structure is what makes Popular Pays so interesting, and why I can't wait for you all to hear his story. My pleasure. Um, so start by telling us a little bit about your background and what Popular Pays is. Pop Pays,
1: it started when I was working at um, Leo Burnett, the ad agency right outside of college. So um, it came out of a, just a, a side project I was working on off hours when I was there. And um, I had I had met someone that was interested in, you know, working on projects and we were delving into it together. But at its core, um, it went through a couple iterations, but at its core, we we have a marketplace that connects brands and content creators. So think of like an Instagrammer or, or someone on Pinterest, you know, you know, Snapchat, YouTube, different networks. And um, it changed over the over the years in terms of what we started out with and what we end with. But we've always it's always been some incarnation of just trying to connect that brands and creators for both content creation and, and advertising.
0: So. What is the real opportunity that you saw? You know, you, you know, you saw the way to connect these brands, but why, you know, what was the pain point that you were finding?
1: Yeah. It's actually changed over time too. Um, because when, when we first started this idea, the pain point we were trying to solve was more of like, um, advertising, like at the time when we launched this and we were connecting brands and and Instagrammers and its first incarnation, um, there was no other way to advertise on Instagram. So, Um, You couldn't buy ads there. And and the only way to really get your brand out was to get influencers to post about your product. But um, weirdly, like the, you know, as we, as we progressed more and more, we realized that although a lot of brands were coming to us for advertising, they were staying for the content. They were getting more value out of the content itself than just like the, the posts and the impressions. And I think it's because um, over time, like, you know, we launched in May, 2013 and over time, it became apparent that the the networks themselves were developing ad tools like Instagram or snapchat and and they wanted to own the advertising dollars in a space. But brands didn't have a way to create content at the same scale uh, as the network's um you know advertising systems. And so you know if we're working with a brand, um they needed some kind of way, some kind of different way than what their traditional methods of working with an agency or in-house to generate all this content. Um because now not only do they have to post stuff on their channels, but you know they need content to boost with at for ad advertising mm-hmm. or um just web content for their different social channels and properties so the the pain point we thought when we launched in the space, we thought it would be around like getting advertised and impressions for brands, but really now we're hyper focused on um you know a marketplace for content generation that's and content that's native for social.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that shows that you're really listening to your customers, though, and not just falling in love with your idea that I see many entrepreneurs fall into that trap. But, you know, what is most successful Mm -hmm. and most helpful for them?
1: It's tough because like when you're when you're first starting out, you want to have this weird mix of like staying really true to the mission you're trying to accomplish and the idea you're trying to go after. But yet you have to be firm with that, but yet really flexible because no one's going to get it right when you first launch into the marketplace. So you have to be, you have to let the idea evolve too.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I'm looking at your website and you've such an impressive customer list. So I'm wondering, what is your favorite customer transformation or customer story to date?
1: Oh man, Um, there's there's a bunch and it it ranges from like, uh, you know, some of them, I think it just ranges on like the, the different campaigns that they're doing. Like some of them, they've had very special executions and uses of the platform. Um, like I know, um, you know, some of them have activated a lot of creators in a short window, like activating 80, 80 influencers or creators in a four hour window to do just like wow. a big product launch or yeah. um, just some just using our content creators to make 1600 pieces of content for their own libraries and use across social or other websites. Um, mm-hmm. Or some creating them for things like billboards. You know, we I saw a billboard in times square that had, you know, our creators content on it. So I think it just depends, like they, we've had a lot of fun with all those brands. They're they're great customers, but um, it's, it, you know, it depends on like what they're using the platform for. And um, it's nice to see that it can range from anything like activating people for an event or just pure content generation for stuff like out of home ads, or, you know, just getting a bunch of people to post about a product as soon as it goes live. It's nice to see like the breadth and depth that you can use the platform for.
0: hmm yeah, no, that's really great. That must be I guess really that was inspiring. An
1: answer, yeah, that was an answer of like, um, <laughs> you know, you ask what children do I, you know, which brand do I love the most or what kid do I love the most? Well, we love all of our kids equally. You know, we can't <laughs> choose. They're all great.
0: <laughs> Although I suspect parents do have a favor. They just don't say it. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, I, they I always must, have a that must be, yeah. <laughs> It must be great, though, to see your billboard in Times Square. That must have been like a very... Uh, that was
1: cool. That's like, probably cool for the creator.
0: <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. definitely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah. So let's now focus on you. So tell me a little about yourself. So what were your, where are you from?
1: I was, I was born in um, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is a small town outside of Pittsburgh. And, you know, born and raised there, um, went to school in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, I went to William and Mary mm-hmm. and um, that's where I had like the first foray into startups. Um, I think actually it started where, um, I was in like an extracurricular um, you know, club or something after school. And um, I remember I, I saw my um, roommate at the time who's really into music, like electronic music, buy a bunch of tickets. Um, and, you know, if he couldn't go to the show, he'd just sell them. He was actually making a lot of money just selling them on, on StubHub or whatever. And um, I just started asking him what tickets he was buying. And I, I, I borrowed money from friends. I got like 4,000 bucks from friends and me, you know, um, family and friends, mostly uh, other students and um, just like, started scalping tickets, which, you know, it made money, but it wasn't that productive. It wasn't that fun. Like I didn't feel good about it. So that was a a brief like three month window. And then the same people who I kind of worked with that, like, um, we cobbled together some funds to do that with, we ended up starting something much more uh, above board, which was a a tutor matching startup. Um, It was, um, you know, a marketplace, another marketplace where, um, you know, people like college students in the area who wanted to tutor could connect with local kids in the area that needed tutoring. And just very basic, you know, um charging a flat fee on top of all the people that were booked on the platform and it was bootstrapped, but and it but it was only making a couple hundred bucks a week or a month. So it mm-hmm. wasn't like we could when we couldn't have left our um it would have been very tough to leave our our um you know after after graduation to do that full time. But but you know, I wish you know, I, I was really grateful for the experience, but and we we met really great people when I when I moved, you know, here to Chicago. But it was pr- probably learned more from just operating a a startup like outside of the classes than I did from the classes themselves.
0: Yeah. And so I love that you went from scalping tickets to then doing, uh, something yeah. with education. So really just a little different. Um, but was that important it, to you having the meaning behind the startup? Instead of just you know, making money.
1: Yeah. Cause like the, you know, the scalping tickets, it, it made probably more money, but it was way more fun building something. Like we, we felt like we were just, um, I don't know. It's like a stock market thing where you can be making money, but without the concept of like, like you're growing a company or building something you're just profiting on a transaction or an arbitrage and um when we switched instead to trying to build a company um it was way more fun in terms of the types of challenges you encountered um Mm. to you know building a team was a really cool but there's you know that's when we first encountered the unique problems that startups face like the founding team dynamics like um if you have if you start a company with three or four people. Granted, one of them is not going to work out, and you know the founding team is very rarely the one that continues to scale it, and so you have to deal with these dilemmas of like picking your founding team wisely, um, addressing, having hard conversations in the beginning, because if you let them linger, then it only gets harder. So we learned, I learned a couple of lessons the hard way then, and um, a little bit of that helped when we went to do Pop Pays the second time around. But um, you know we encountered so many different problems with popular pays because. We try to do, do it on a scale that we hadn't before. Like we immediately tried to raise money and grow it really large,
0: whereas mm-hmm. before
1: it was more of a bootstrapped enterprise.
0: So is the we the same people that you did the uh, tutoring mm-hmm. with?
1: No. Um, yeah, we also went our separate way. Uh, the initial founding team was that Startup in College. We went our separate ways after graduation and took jobs. But um, I quit my job at Leo Burnett a year later um, after working there. With uh, another co uh, a different like co-founding team, uh, just three people, mm-hmm. we moved in together and and um and tried to make that work. But it was they were separate founding teams. But I think it really does though help to have some kind of other um, context. Of for example, like when I was in school and we started the first um, tutor matching company, you know, I was taking classes with those other students that we founded it with, so I really knew them already before we were starting. It's like if you don't have that shared context of something and you decide to co-found something, it's really like deciding to marry someone who's a stranger. You need some mm-hmm. kind of history so you de-risk it. And similarly, when you know I left Burnett to start Pop Pays, it was only because um you know I knew the co-founder that I was hanging with uh, that I was like hanging out with and working with during the day and I, I knew them well enough to know that it would be successful when we quit to do it full time. So I think you need to, that shared context, whether it's you've gone to school together, or grew up together, or have worked together. That really de-risks things when you go to start a venture together.
0: Yes, definitely. I think um, I think it's also that you know each other better, and so you're aware of mm-hmm. you know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and you're able to round out totally. your team accordingly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before William and Mary, let's go back to you know your earlier years in Pennsylvania. So what did your parents do for a
1: living? Um, my dad, he's in, uh, actually he, you know, at the time, um, when I was in college and starting this, he was on a kind of a startup of his own, um, not like a founding team, but it was a small team, about 50 people. They were, they had this medical device, um, uh, called Emma at the time where it was like a machine that would dispense medication. If you couldn't remember mm-hmm. to take it yourself, like let's think of an Alzheimer's patient or someone who went through brain surgery. So it was a, um, you know, it's high stakes in terms of it, you gotta have, you gotta be cleared by the FDA and stuff. But he helped with sales and business development for them. And then on my mom's side, she actually is a, um, a musician and graphic designer. You could actually, you know, search her name, Jennifer Drumley, on, on Spotify and listen to her too. Oh, wow.
0: That's awesome. And so your dad, you're, when you're going to college or in high school, your dad's doing this startup. Is that the first time you really thought about entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, even when, we, when I was at Burnett and I quit, I reached out to my dad and said we didn't know anyone in the space. We and we quit with just like three thousand dollars in savings and like less than three months of runway. And I said like don't don't you guys have like like um you know investors in your company? It, like it's it's not like my dad was one of the um, people that raised it, but he's like I think that I could you know see if they have a VC group backing it. And he introduced me. Luckily, one of those guys lived in Chicago, and that guy didn't you know he didn't invest or anything, but he helped me at least he helped explain a couple of the, thing, the key terms of in entrepreneurship, like what a convertible note is or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me to someone else who also didn't invest, which is kind of how things go in the early days. But that person introduced me to a different angel who invested and it was our first angel investor. And that's when you know, we got like our first 10K check and we just, it was so much money back then. Like we had run out of money actually. We like I, you know, we said we, you know, we quit with like three months of runway. I was down to like 150 bucks, but rent was due. So I owed a lot more, like, you know, I owed more than that. And, um, but we had gotten two checks on the same day for 10K each. And I was able to call my landlord and say, hey, I'm going to miss rent, like, this Friday or whatever, but I'll get it to you Monday. Also, I quit my job, but I'm good, don't worry. (laughs) So it was was really down to the wire in the first early days.
0: And so what, I'm curious then, you're at Leo Burnett, what was the tipping point to say, was it the opportunity that you saw um, and the timing or what made you finally say, like, we're going to do this for real and quit?
1: You know, I think you really need to, like, I would not, I don't think I would have quit on my own. Um, actually, I remember um, the guy I was, I was partnering with, um, he, you know, he was, um, he's on the creative side, like an art director. And I was an account manager. I was really buttoned up. Um, so my, my co-founder was, you know, in terms of yin and yang, he was more creative and, and, um, willing to take a risk, um, but we had kind of set a, you know, things were picking up pace to where we were working on this project outside, you know, on nights and weekends. And we would come home from work at like 6.37 and eat and talk about the project and work till midnight and wake up at, you know, eight and keep doing it. But we got to a point where we just couldn't push the project further. And um, it really felt like, you know, we needed to commit more time to to do it or else it just would never pick up critical momentum or velocity. And mm-hmm. we set a target date for ourselves. Like, we want to quit by this date. And a date came around and like, I, you know, I didn't turn to my two weeks. And then, um, I remember my co-founder forwarded me a resignation letter that he had sent to his boss and I was like, oh, wow. you, you did it. And, uh, he kind of forced my hand. And so I think we were, we were unprepared when we left. Um, we were unprepared and, um, we probably quit too early, but yet again, like it worked out and I don't, if we hadn't quit then, I don't know if we ever would have. Uh, cause it's really, it's, you, again, when you reach that point where you're putting everything into it and to get to the next level, you, you need to, you get that feeling that you need to just like find more time, but you're already working nights and weekends. We, we just ended up, you know, saying that it's, it's now as a good of time as ever of, uh, for quitting and, um, had set that date for ourselves and that the hell is accountable, but really it was just the fact that my co-founder took a leap and, you know, I, I had to jump with him.
0: Do you think that's something that you did when you were younger, you know, like set yourself goals or deadlines to really or were you more of someone who could jump in um, and then when you're older kind of need to to give yourself some boundaries?
1: Um, you know what? I think in the early days, like in the very, very early days, it's always like your parents that are saying this for you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they did it enough in the early days that, yeah, going, you know, going to school and stuff like that, I, I definitely had, you know, I leaned more towards structure whereas my co-founder was on the creative um, and product mm-hmm. side in a way. Um, and you need both. Like you you need this weird mix, like I said, of flexibility and um, like being data-driven and rigid and, and um, disciplined. But you need to let your idea evolve and be open. Like one of the biggest product lines we have in terms of newest opportunities that's generating revenue, um, when it first came across our plates, we were like, Meh. like, so the opportunity was like, you know, we have content creators who are making content, posting it to networks, and um, someone asked us, like, "Hey, can we help? You know, boost that content from the creator's handle?" Um, and it was something new that we didn't know you could do. And at first, we we're like, "No, we don't, we don't do that." And um, but if you're open to trying out new things um, mm-hmm. and open to jumping and into it and being comfortable with failure, you you need both. So I'm both. You know, sometimes I'm religiously tracking things and setting deadlines and schedules for myself, but then um, very open these days to just, um, experimenting and, and being comfortable with that as well.
0: And so that comfortable with failure, is there any time that you remember that you really failed that taught you, you know, you, you, I feel like with failure, the interesting thing is that everyone has this pivotal moment where you fail and you realize everything, you know, you'll still survive. Everything will be okay. Things will work out. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you have anything like that before popular phase?
1: You know, the the first time, I guess, when I'm looking back on it, it doesn't even feel like it, but you know, when we started that company and folded it, like mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we started this company in college and I went abroad my last semester because I'd never been abroad and I wanted to study abroad, but we um, tried to find a man. No one else was like one of the four teammates at the time was, was graduated and I was abroad. Two other ones were wrapped up in certain, you know, internships or activities. And so we try to hire someone, another student to kind of run it in our absence. And it kind of fell through um, this person, even though we, you know, had interviewed pretty rigorously that this person got wrapped up in school work and just said they couldn't do it. And when the original like founding four teammates got together, we were like, well, it's you know, we should just roll this, roll, like, wrap it up and and um, just kind of distribute what we had in the bank account and just call it a day and shut it down. Mm-hmm. It was kind of sad because we'd get like we'd continually get emails from customers like you know, hope, hope, needing a tutor and emailing us for a long time after that. Like it was it was interesting how um, we kept getting reminders of it. But it was, you know, it was all right. Like we we hadn't we hadn't quit um, a school or jobs to do it, but we hung a lot of our personal identities on it. Um, you know, mm. our, our parents and friends knew we were doing it, um, and we spent a lot of time doing it. And so that was kind of like a very easy way to get into that concept of being okay with trying something and it not really working. Um, and many times at the ad agency world, like you are pitching so many ideas that just get killed. And but it's both mm-hmm. disheartening in terms of 90% of the creative energy is just not bought by the client and it's not purchased and, and shipped. And it's nice to be in a startup where like 90% of your work does get shipped. And, you know, it's the market that decides if uh, the idea works or not. It's not like a boss or anything. But um, it that does make you very comfortable with failure in terms of you practice coming up with an idea and pitching it and it not working. And you get comfortable with being risky or adventurous with ideas and trying new things. Um, because really that's the lifeblood of the creative advertising industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it it gives you a thick skin.
1: It's tough. And I remember I remember that like part part of your job, like if you are an account manager, for example, it's pushing for great work, but then if it gets killed, it's um you know delivering it in the right way to the creative team. Um but yeah if you have too many defeats with not good work being, that you know that's being proposed um it can lead to, to to turnover and i think that when we've we had some really great ideas you know through the d- different accounts i worked at and different internships or agencies and um, that i came in contact with and um it yeah it can if you're not shipping the work that you really want to do um it can be tough not uh, funny enough my my co-founder that i started pop pays with um made this thing called a graveyard where you would put all the ideas that didn't get, get bought but they they put them up there as inspiration for people who maybe were stuck with their own client and needed a new idea. So they instituted mm-hmm. that um, at Burnett and it was a great idea in terms of like, you know, helping to get a home for things that didn't make it, but still have so much potential and creativity, especially in advertising, can help you keep that magic or that spark alive. So um, even though stuff didn't get built, yeah. um, there was a lot of good stuff that did.
0: Yeah. It sounds like actually it's a great foundation to be a CEO where you have to deliver bad news and kind of keep morale yeah. high. Um, I never thought of so that. that's what I was saying.
1: Yeah. Yes. And uh, you're, yeah, you're kind of touching all aspects, like the, you know, the the mm-hmm. brands are your are your clients, and the creative team. is almost analogous to you know the team that's producing your product. Um, at a, at, so yeah, I guess I guess it is it is a good foundation because you have to be well rounded uh, and communicate to multiple stakeholders well, and deal with you know things that don't go right.
0: And now that you're a CEO, what do you think the best piece of advice you've ever gotten is?
1: Probably pick your co founding team wisely. Um mm-hmm. just because going through YC, um, we saw, you know, there's there's eight hundred companies that have gone through YC and our batch was about a hundred. And they have such good purview in terms of like what kills companies and and what makes good companies exist. And um, I mean, first and foremost, you have to build something that people want. Um, but if the a single tactical piece of advice is like once you've decided on, you know, once you're you wanna start a company or build a product, um, the the highest leveraged decision you can ever make is who you're going to found the team with. Because we saw companies mm-hmm. get ripped apart at YC that didn't have a good founding dynamic. You need the right combination of personalities to build the team forward. And um, yeah, like, so pick your co-founding team wisely. Tactically, um, either, I, I think Andreessen says raise prices on your product because people don't charge enough. Or I'd say, like (laughs) from a legal point of view, file your eighty-three Bs if you know what those are. Just, just do it. You don't even need to know what it is. Just when you start a company, file them. Uh,
0: All right. So let's move now to the final few minutes of just some fun questions. So, what do you think the best book you've read for um, as a
1: founder? That's a really. I mean, so I I, I read a lot. Um, I listen to probably like a book every week and a half or so just on my commute, and it's it's a tough one. But I would say that um, I'll give I'll give a couple like ones for what made me change the most um, one is for like entertainment um, and then one's more like founder therapy. Uh,
0: so
1: um, <laughs> even though this one is really cheesy, I remember um, a mentor from Chicago, Emerson, Sparse from Dose, when I first met him and we were first starting Pop Pays, he recommended I read um 20 manager. And I was entirely unfamiliar with what eighty twenty meant and the rule of like what, what that, um, that phrase means. But basically it means that, you know, let's say, for any for any given system, whether it's sales or um like your efforts in just day to day, you probably have a hundred things to do, but only twenty of them matter. Like twenty of those things you're doing will lead to eighty percent of the results. Um and, you know, it matters with sales too, like out of the hundred prospects you're working with, 20% of them will lead to 80% of the sales. And mm-hmm. from a from a culture of like growing up with homework where you just have to do everything and just you have to please a teacher and you're not really worried about like You know what the market thinks of your homework you just you have to do it all and you have to please your teacher you kind of always like i grew up and went into the workforce without really thinking critically about what's the important thing to do i just had to do all of it and now like my the way i think of things is i I try to do like pick the three most important things to do and to do during the day and do those before anything else and there's so much that comes up in terms of slacks emails people t- like tapping the shoulder, but if you can focus on just doing the important things first, you will be, you're, you'll be so much more highly leveraged with using your time that that's what will move you forward. And the book 8020 manager, it's very cheesy, um, but he illustrates it better. Richard Koch, I think his name is illustrates it better than anyone in terms of giving an example of like, you know, your tasks during your day and which tasks add a lot of value and which tasks don't. And it, for the first time mm-hmm. got me thinking in terms of like, you know, maybe I shouldn't spend time cleaning the office. Maybe we should get a clean team and I can, you know, spend an additional hour and a half working or mm-hmm. that was like one of the first things I realized when I was reading it um, or just other things like that, like um, where, places where I can save time on, on doing mm-hmm. something. And um, you might be spending some money, but you are taking care of an aspect of work that you don't have to focus on. You can focus on higher value work. And in the beginning you have to do everything yourself, but your job as a founder is to focus on the high leverage stuff as much as possible. And as soon as you can, um, delegate or, de- you know, delete, diminish, whatever the the stuff that's not high value. So that was, that was mm-hmm. transformational. Um, and in terms of like founder therapy, just to make you feel good because things are hard in the startup, I would read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz mm-hmm. because yeah. he had such a tough journey and then, worse, and then it got worse and then it got worse and then it got worse and he still hung in there and they, they did great. And so it's encouraging to read that stuff.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I'm actually reading that right now. So it's funny you say that. Who is the founder that you would most want to interview, and why?
1: Well, oh, I, I feel like I have almost in a way because, like, I you know some of the books I read were like the um, you know the biographies of of Musk, Bezos, or all the different the founders that are traditionally known. And so I feel like I've I've tried to pull what I can from just hearing um, mm-hmm. you know their own interviews and, and biographies. Um, some of them are more secluded than others like it's hard to you know some of them are more they keep their cards close to the chest um but i mean in terms of like who i could interview um it's probably better for us to interview people that are not quite so far like i don't know if i could learn as much from someone like musk as i could from someone who's a bit further up on the ladder but you know not like you know like let's say the airbnb founders or something Mm -hmm. and so probably teams like that because i think that we could learn more from people that have been a startup a lot more recently than say Amazon has um, and mm-hmm. I think that would add you know add the most value and I could probably relate more um, and plus the people are already writing about those the big ones too so I can just read their books
0: <laughs> yeah definitely well thank you so much for being on my show it was awesome to have you
1: my pleasure and, and thanks for having me it's, um, I love the concept of it and I'm excited to check out the other ones you have
0: And that's it for episode 21 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, so be sure to check out 52Founders.com and stay up to date with us on Twitter at 52Founders. I'll see you next week for another episode.